which is which is a little disappointing. <laughs> but allegedly tomorrow, we'll see. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. Welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I'm your host, Ashley Roberts, and we have with us my good friend, Faith Borkowski. Hey, Faith. <laughs> Hi, Ashley. So good to be here. How are you today? I'm okay. We haven't talked in a long time. We haven't, but you have been doing some really exciting work in the time that we haven't chatted on Dyslexia Coffee Talk. So tell us about the school district you've been working with. Okay, so uh, I just recently wrote about it. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote a blog that appeared in um, the Phonic Books uh, page. So it's not on my website. And it was called uh, Leading the Way on Long Island right, that Lynbrook is leading the way on Long Island. So it is the Lynbrook School District. And it's very exciting because um, on Long Island, we really don't have districts that are fully embracing the science of reading. Although I think many of the districts think they are mm -hmm. um, by making some small changes and that's usually what you see is uh, that most districts will start with their special ed department and try to bolster it with certain programs and filling gaps in. But this uh, district, at least to my knowledge, is the very first one to actually embrace it and make a decision to start in kindergarten and change things up completely. So, um, and I'm very excited and honored that I was a part of this journey with them and will continue to be part of the journey. I, I love that so much. And I, I did read your blog and I shared it on our page because it was, it, you're right, it's so powerful for, like I think I shared with you an image that a school district in Texas had created that, believe, that proposed the idea that balanced literacy via a platform like uh, Teachers College Reading and Writing Project could exist with structured literacy together and create a more comprehensive literacy idea for teaching reading. And, you know, educators like you and advocates like me know that that absolutely can't work. Um, <clears throat> so for, to, ha to have a school like I'm gonna say Lindbrook, is it? Yes. Okay. For some reason in my head, I'm stuck on Linwood and I, <laughs> once it's, you get the wrong name so stuck in your head, you know, it's always wrong. I do that all the time, <laughs> all the time. I'm always, I'm like, okay, L something, is it <laughs> Long Beach, Lindbrook? <laughs> I'm in two places. <laughs> but for the, for Lindbrook to make such a brave decision, cause it really is brave, right? To abandon balanced literacy and they're they're going to retrain their teachers is this correct yes um they're in the process of doing that they started in kindergarten and this change began in the summer and uh actually even uh at the end of last school year uh is when i really started to talk to the assistant superintendent of instruction but it officially began in the summer. And uh, 
they wisely made the decision to begin in kindergarten. They have a kindergarten center. So the whole kindergarten center was trained and not only the teachers, but the principal there, Ellen Postman made a commitment to go through the training as well as the assistant superintendent and the superintendent uh, and the um, curriculum coordinator. So this is no joke. And, uh, you know, this is not just, you know, putting a little toe in the water. And uh, at this very moment, the um, reading specialists and anyone who does intervention also, um, I believe some people from special ed, but they're starting with interventionists from the elementary school buildings, and they are just starting to go through the training now. And then the first grade teachers will start their training soon, so that by the time the school year comes in the fall, they'll be ready to roll it out in the first grade. And so it's going up into the second grade. And so by the time these kids get to third grade, they can really be working on grade level word study work, multi-syllable words, morphology, and that's always tied in um, to some degree, but it really kicks in strongly as they get older. So um, it is very exciting to watch. And um, I feel blessed, honestly, to watch this. And I said, it's the highlight of my career because I I was involved in an initiative, as you know, Mm -hmm. many years ago with Reading First, No Child Left Behind. And, you know, when people are kind of pushed into doing something, it's never the same effect than when you actually choose to make that decision. You know, this was a choice that this district made. And, um, you know, when I was a reading coach, the only people who were really getting involved with the science, and I've mentioned this before, they didn't call it the science of reading. It was called scientifically based reading research, Uh, but it was all part of No Child Left Behind. The districts that were targeted were the low performing districts. And they knew that uh, if they applied for the grant, that there was a lot of money that would come along with this grant. And so, you know, it it was really based on something that was not purely, oh, I wanna do this. And so you had a lot of resistance Uh, because, you know, even the administrators who applied, I'm not sure all of them wholeheartedly wanted to change. Mm -hmm. I think there were people who wrote uh, the grant who were not the decision makers. So you had some of that going on, Mm -hmm. but this is a very, very unique situation because this is not a low performing district at all. And so this is a district that really did not have to make that decision to change, Um, but they are so committed to every one of the students in that district 
that when they looked at their special, uh, their special ed numbers, they realized that, you know what, we could be doing better. And uh, I I'm just so impressed with the people there. You have no idea. Yeah. And so that was going to be one of my questions was what, what were the performance statistics of, of the district kind of going into this? Because you're right, it's sort of surprising that it would be a high performing district instead of maybe a lower performing district at risk of some sort of Department of Education takeover or something like that. But I'm going to be fascinated to see what their num how their numbers improve considering they're already a high improving district. Um, I wish they could track the investment that the parents aren't going to have to make in tutors. <laughs> well, you know something, I, I do think that they're very much aware of the personal commitment um, that's involved mm -hmm. uh, when parents seek outside help. Yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, for certain that they are aware of that and care very much to make that change. Um, Long Island is a very funny place. So just to give you a little background about where we are, uh, there's some of the wealthiest places in the country right here on Long Island. This is not one of them. Um, it's not the Hamptons. It's not one of the districts that, um, you know, get in the papers as being, you know, the top performing districts. Um, and, you know, no coincidence, those are the ones that are the wealthiest. So if, you know, you were to look at Great Neck, they're not, um, you know, they, they are a very wealthy district. I'm just throwing out Great Neck because it is one of those top performing districts. It's also one of the wealthiest districts. And so, you know, you, you look at that and you might say, oh, I want my child to be in a Great Neck School District. Again, I'm not putting anything down about a district. I'm giving you that as an example that if you were to look up <clears throat> like that, you would say, oh my goodness, uh, top scores, uh, you know, you, you look at the top colleges and you would say, wow, they must be doing something that's magical there. But I wanna be clear that Great Neck is no different from any other school district on Long Island, other than looking at socioeconomic status. And so, um, and that's what uh, Long Island really is. It's very much um, little silos across Long Island. We have 124 school districts here. Wow. Right, so think <laughs> about that, 124 school districts. And a lot of that is really connected to a tax base that, you know, keeping the taxes uh, higher and making certain areas seem exclusive with top school districts and it's quite competitive. Mm -hmm. And then you have some very, very poor areas on Long Island. This mm -hmm. is not one of them. It's really, um, I think a good testing ground so that you can't chalk it up to, well, you know what, uh, 
this district is at the top end or the lowest end. It's, it's really, um, I think, a great place to be for Long Island. Nice. Uh, so they, they really don't get into the papers for anything that stands out in a bad way or you know, an extraordinary way. I'm hoping that this will get them the recognition they so deserve and mm -hmm. the leadership there so deserves. But I like the idea behind that, that it's sort of, it's sort of a middle America approach. You know, it's not poverty, it's not great wealth, it's middle of the road, if you will, mm -hmm. um, which will probably make it easier for the vast majority of districts across the country to embrace the idea behind what they're doing. Exactly. <clears throat> See, what my experience is, um, that people think, well, you know what? We're doing just great. We're just at the top. Why do we have to change? Mm -hmm. And then when you have those districts that score at the bottom, people kind of say, well, you know, it's X district. It's, you know, it, they're just going to keep trying something different all the time, but you know what? They're, you know, what could you expect? Mm -hmm. I kind of like that there are really, uh, in this case, no expectations or no preconceived notions about what this is. And I think more districts will embrace it. I, you know, from my experience also, when I worked in reading first, we worked with predominantly black and Hispanic school districts um, that they seem to get the grant. And, um, you know, and it was really a white minority. So when other districts on Long Island looked at this, they chalked it up to, well, it's for those kids, those districts. And so, I think a district like Lynbrook, where it's it's not like that, that you, like you said, middle America, people who perhaps could see this is a diverse district, mm -hmm. not great wealth, not poverty, that they could identify and say, well, if they're making the change, maybe we need to explore this. Right. So. No, I mean, my, my district's like running through my head a thousand miles an hour while, while we talk about this, because that's exactly what it is. There's not great wealth. There's not great poverty. It's the middle of the road sort of a thing. And the idea that what they're doing works, but the community, you know, the parents within the community are spending a fortune on private tutors. Yes. You know, SAT prep, math tutors. I mean, there, there's like a Sylvan or a Kumon almost every corner out here. Didn't I write about that in Failing Students or Failing Schools? You absolutely you know, did. <laughs> uh, look, and, and you could clearly see the difference in communities mm -hmm. where there are communities where you won't see one tutoring center at all. And then, like you said, where I live, where you live, you'll see tutoring centers everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's even new ones popping up. I, I've, I've noticed new names I've never seen before. <laughs> but um, 
how, you know, because the families are intervening, it skews the statistics for the school districts. And so their numbers are because the parents are bolstering their kids so much. So when you have an area where the parents are investing in and maybe can afford those tutors for certain subject areas, or, you know, God forbid all subject areas, what this, what the districts are seeing and measuring isn't a real performance of what they're teaching because the parents are involved so heavily. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the point there. Uh, look here, we have a local newspaper, um, Newsday, and they're very big on putting the scores in and they'll list, list district by district in Nassau County and Suffolk County. And parents look at those scores and they're like, oh, this district came in number one and number 15 and number 20. And you know, out of 124 school districts, you always see, you know, give or take the same school districts in the top 20 or the top 30 or so forth. And you know that it's usually the white school district, wealthy school district, and they all have teachers college reading and writing. They all have Fontes and Pinnell guided reading. They all have that balanced approach. So what's the difference? Right. Really, what's the difference? You know, you cannot tell me that this is, um, you know, one teacher is doing something so very different in another district. You know, granted, um, in poorer districts, you have other problems. You know, there, there's stress over finances. Um, we don't know if kids are all going to school um, with breakfast in their bellies. Uh, there are people who are working two and three jobs and they might not be able to be as involved as they would like to be. Right. But let me be clear, all parents love their kids and want the best for their kids. And they're all doing the best they can. Right. So there is this um, really uh, this fake um, assumption. I don't know what you call it. It's this just this fairy tale assumption that, well, they must be doing something so much better in these districts. And they want to keep this going because it boosts home sales, you know, you know, like people buy their homes based on a zip code. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that's something that people want. They want it, that image. Oh, I want to be in this school district. I want to be here. I want to be there. But, you know, in reality, behind closed doors, these people are getting tutors for everything. So if your kid is not performing as well, they are on it. They're getting tutors. Uh, if their children do well, well, then they're on to the college courses and trying to get um, academic advisors to get them into the best colleges. I mean, look at the stars. They, they buy their way into these schools, we yeah. know. And um, it's all about money. 
are those kids any more special than your son or my children or anybody? No, it's how you're able to manipulate a system. So there is this um, image that if you go to one of these places, they're doing something better. They're not, they are not at all. And, you know, being here on, on Long Island, you know, New York is the epicenter of all of this. You know, we have Teachers College, Columbia University in our backyards. So a lot of districts have partnerships with, um, you know, the Teachers College program, or they have a partnership with um, Literacy Collaborative, which was huge at one point. That's the Fontes and Pinnell guided reading where a lot of the uh, reading um, coordinators got their training through um, Literacy Collaborative. And then, uh, you know, a combination of the two. So I, I have to tell you that most people are going to do what they're taught. And, and it becomes this fixed mindset that that has to be the best. You know, if an, an administrator uh, went to Columbia and got a master's there and paid God knows to get, you know, a master's from Columbia University, they're not so willing to give up what they thought was best. And so I, I had a whole conversation once with an administrator who got her master's at Columbia and she insulted me saying um, something like, well, uh, you know, I, I went to Columbia University and I got my master's in literacy. I guess you couldn't get in. And I, yes. So I laughed, I said, actually, I went to Brooklyn College, a CUNY, because I couldn't afford anything else. And you know what? My degree is toilet paper like yours. So I think that I'm actually smarter because I didn't pay all that money for a degree that's worthless. I had to do all my own training after just like everybody else. Yeah. So, uh, and that's the sin that all these teachers spend so much money on degrees and still need so much training if they wanna do things right by kids. At least the kids who um, can't uh, learn to read in a closet. You know, if you have a kid who can learn to read in a closet, well, it really doesn't matter what you do, you're fine. <laughs> but if you're working with those kids who really need direct explicit instruction. I know my college did not prepare me for that. Yeah. Um, I, they were very good with other things. Don't get me wrong. It was Brooklyn College at the time when I went, I don't know what it is now. At the time I went, it was considered a poor man's Ivy League. That's how they described it, poor man's Ivy League, because it was easy to get in because it was a city college, but hard to stay in. And it, because they had this core program and it was, um, you know, I forget how many credits, but about a third 
of the credits were mandatory courses that we had to take in the liberal arts, where other schools, well, you could just take, a take anything you wanted. Here, you had to take this core program and a lot of people ended up transferring because they couldn't handle it. So it was a very good school in, in that regard. But the education program was no different from what the expensive schools offered. Yeah, I, you know, there was a time in my life, i.e. when I was a teenager that, <laughs> you know, what, who is it, US Weekly or some, somebody comes out with a list once a year of the top schools across the country and they're broken down by, you get the top 10, but then you get by degree. So you can look at like top MBA programs, top master's programs in this, top medical programs, top legal program, you know, et cetera. Um, maybe it's US News and World Report, I can't remember. But like my, it can't, seems like it came out fairly recently and my son comes home and he goes, I wanna go to Harvard or Brown. And I go, why? <laughs> he goes, because those are the best schools. And I went, you know, we both immediately turned around and looked at him and we went, it doesn't matter where you go, it matters what you do with it and mm -hmm. how hard you, you work at the material. The piece of paper doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no, it might get you a foot in the door for your first yes. job. That I think it does. Um, <clears throat> I, I know that um, as far as moving up in my world, that there were some districts that they would only look at Columbia University uh, Teachers College to kind of sort through. And they wouldn't even look if mm -hmm. you were a graduate of Brooklyn College, let's say. But once you got your foot in the door, then it's what you made out of it, you know, what, what you did with it. And um, I could tell you, I didn't suffer and I didn't have any loans to pay back. So uh, that's, uh, you know, just something to think about. Exactly. As I continue to pay the student loans for my graduate degree, I completely agree. <laughs> you know, and that was my decision. I, I right. wanted to get on with my life. And, um, you know, right. at the time, when I went to school, I started college in 1986. Um, at the time, people just started their lives earlier, having children earlier, getting married earlier. Um, you know, maybe today things would have been a little bit different, you know, in terms of my decisions. But at the time, no, I, I wanted to have children. I wanted to get married. And, you know, I didn't want to have loans to worry about, truthfully, you know, but I, I did it with my kids too. I told them, you don't have to go this route. And both my kids, they don't have student loans either. We were able to help them as well and um, not have the student loans. Yeah. It, it's just something to think about. People are rethinking college at this point mm -hmm. in time because a lot of people are just uh, strapped with loans. 
Yeah. And I just want to throw this out there that I did see a report recently that said the top, the number one student loan university in the country is NYU. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> a very expensive school. Yes. My, my father went there. My oh, father wow. was a graduate of NYU, but he went on, um, oh, what did they call it? Um, he, when he got out of the army, they, they were- bill? The G, yes, good, Ashley. The, yes, the GI Bill. And so he was in the Korean War and um, he was, he got everything paid for through the GI Bill. Yep. And so he started in City University, but then he uh, ended up getting a degree at NYU. And uh, that was great. Yep. You know, it was a great experience for him. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so much has to do with timing, right? Everything is timing. But look, as we talk, you see, just from what I'm saying, when parents have to make that decision about school or neighborhoods or living in a certain place or having that address, don't stress, you know, mm -hmm. because really from what I'm seeing, and I've been in a lot of districts, a lot of districts. And so, you know, when teachers are in classrooms, they really are in their own silos. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're locked in that room with kids all day. You don't even know what's going on in the rest of the building. So you certainly don't know what's going on in other districts, but I had the good fortune of seeing that. It's the same everywhere. Yeah. It's the same everywhere and um, the same type of instruction the same people where you have about a third of the teachers who are really like, you know, the most dedicated. And then you have the third who really will fall into that category of, you know, I do my job and, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, but I don't really go that extra mile. And then you have some people who just ride on tenure, you know, um, it's, it's, it really falls out to be the same everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then maybe some of the numbers are different elsewhere, depending on leadership. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm so impressed with Lindbrook because yeah. I I'm seeing, wow, maybe the numbers are different here. Maybe it has to do with making good choices, you mm -hmm. know? And uh, who's at the top? I, I, well, with the advocacy that I've done, I find that definitely to be a necessary support because when the top's not supporting, it's way too easy for people to turn around and go, yeah, I'm not, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, pro, I mean, I know that you wrote about it in the article that you wrote, but let's, let's talk about the specific programs that they're shifting to. Mm -hmm. Which ones did they choose? Okay, so um, they chose Itchy's Alphabet, which uh, could be a complete reading program um, for early childhood but they are using the handwriting and letter recognition part of Itchies because it, in, uh, it encompasses 
picture mnemonics. Okay. And that was something that I brought up when, uh, when I was talking to Dr. Balekis. He's the assistant superintendent of instruction, uh, curriculum and instruction. And I really feel that kids early on need to recognize those letters automatically mm -hmm. and to write their letters accurately. And so picture mnemonics, when the letter is embedded right in the picture, uh, there's research supporting that, that it is extremely helpful. And um, I, from my own practice, see the benefits of that. And uh, Itchy's Alphabet concentrates on the sound first, not the letter name, mm -hmm. and lowercase letters. So that aligns with my belief in terms of seeing how kids struggle that many times it is this confusion with sounds and names. For instance, um, let's say the letter is Y, right? What are you hearing at the beginning when you say Why? the name Y? What do you hear? The sound? Yeah. yeah. The W. Yeah. Well, what you would assume, right? But they think that the letter Y would have the sound that normally would go with the letter W, right? right. So there's this confusion. That's just one example. Right. Um, we could say the letter U. What do you hear at the beginning of U? U. But the sound. Oh. <laughs> but the name of the letter. <laughs> but just think, if the name of the letter is U, what are you hearing at the beginning? Mm. Ah, yes, which you would think that's what a Y sound would be attached to, the consonant sound of Y, right? So when they are seeing a U, they're not thinking of a, uh, they're thinking, oh, the name of the letter is U. So mm -hmm. then they're associating that name and thinking sound from the name. And so there are some names of letters where the sound does align at the beginning, right? Um, it will happen that way, but not a lot. Then you have the sound where it could be, let's say if I said to you, the name of the letter is S, S. You're hearing the S at the end of the name yeah. And yet, what are you hearing when you say eh, right? Like, yeah, yeah. and so you might stick these vowels in where they don't belong mm -hmm. in writing, because right. writing is a real window into what you'll see. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the decision to um, go with a handwriting program that stressed sounds first, that's what you learn first, and that's what makes sense. That's what will stick with kids. What they learn first is what will stick. That's why when they do balance literacy and they start with level books, that's what they're learning first, to guess at words or to use cueing, and it's very hard to break those habits. So that decision was made. But since mm -hmm. Lindbrook is a large district, we wanted a reading program that could be taken up through the grades. So we wanted this alignment with speech to print. 
okay. hearing a word, pulling the sounds out first, and then applying letter or letters to those sounds, um, which I have found in my practice. And again, it's not that it doesn't work the other way. I want to be clear. Many um, programs are print to speech. That's normally, you know, the OG philosophy. Orton Gillingham is usually here's the letter A, the sound is A, rather than listening for a word and listening for sounds and then thinking about encoding those letters to sounds. Okay. So we talked about a few different speech to print programs that I like and have had experience with, or at least have researched and know that they're quality ones. And I was recently trained at the time in Sounds Right before going in this direction. And I thought the training, the online training was superb. Um, John Walker and his wife, um, Tita, did an extraordinary job uh, I think his wife was the one who was in charge of the tech part of this. And um, the training is six weeks long and it does go into the whole simple view of reading and uh, cognitive overload. And it's not just teaching a program. I, I really wanna stress that, that right. incorporated into the training is a real strong theoretical base, but mm -hmm. it quickly goes into what's practical. <clears throat> and um, it, it was very much aligned to the training that I had when I was trained in phonographics. And um, that was my first training that I had when I discovered the science of reading. And sure enough, John Walker was a trainer um, for uh, phonographics and okay. then branched out into his own program. So the philosophical base, you know, is this speech to print, hearing the words and, and going with language, which is natural for kids, right? We all talk. And so reading is not natural, but speech is. And uh, it's very kid friendly when it's taught from the beginning. A lot of hands-on, not fancy gadgets, not a lot of materials required, just a dry erase board and a marker. Um, the programs are really about delivering instruction, um, you know, with, an easel almost, uh, you know, instead of a smart board, although teachers use smart boards for it. Uh, Post-it notes to actually show the um, phoneme, grapheme, sound letter correspondence. Um, and it's very much um, what I like, low tech, high engagement. Yeah. You know, and that's what I look for, which I think makes a huge difference. And it it's geared to whole class teaching. So it's not, even though it might have started off as an intervention, it is absolutely 
whole class. They have a ton of uh, districts in the UK using it. It has a fantastic reputation. And then the best part of all this is not only does Sounds Right have their own decodables, but a company called Phonic Books aligned right to the program. So uh, this district bought the books. And I don't mean just for a book room to sit in a book room because that is another issue. You know, I'm sure you know in schools they have book rooms. And, um, you know, teachers will have their own baskets. And then there's this book room. And I could tell you from experience that the book room doesn't get used by a lot of people. When it's right in the class and it is right there for you to take a set of books to use that align right to what you've been teaching, mm -hmm. it makes sense. And guess what? Tammy Frankfurt, the person who is, um, well, she's one, I shouldn't say just Tammy, but she's part of, um, she's one of the founders of Phonic Books, I believe, but she's the person I've been communicating with, was also um, trained in Sounds Right. And I think she might have been a trainer herself, if, you know, I think so. So she knows that sequence and she's a practitioner herself. So the books really, you know, it's not like some publisher who tries to make sense of a program and just takes a sequence and does some type of, you know, so-so job. This really aligns, she knows the theory behind everything. And, uh, you know, the books are beautiful books and they align right to the program. And all the kindergarten teachers were given full decodable sets of books. And the first grade and second grade will have it and the interventionists will have it. And, you know, they're all set up for success there. And what's fantastic is um, the superintendent, um, Dr. Burak, um, Melissa Burak and uh, Jerry Belekis, they, when they got the training, they made sure that the teachers were going to have the time to do this or to be compensated for their time. There's such a respect there for teachers' time because this, to do it right, you really, it's not an easy training. It really takes a lot of thought. There are model lessons that you have to videotape yourself doing this. And not only did they do it, but they gave the teachers the time and they have a teaching assistant in every room in the kindergarten center, fully licensed teachers, by the way, they're all certified. They have um, you know, teacher degrees, uh, teaching degrees. And the teachers get time to do this during the school day to get their training. Or if they didn't want to do it that way, they were going to be compensated for after school time. 
But it wasn't just expected that they would take on all of this uh, without uh, making it bearable. And and that to me shows a commitment. It really does show a respect of the teaching profession. It shows um, it was well thought out. And um, when I started working with them, they wanted to make sure that teachers bought in to this. And so I did workshops with teachers and the Lindbrook district, anyone who wanted to be on in the summer, they were able to go on to my training. And I was, I was trying to bridge what they might know about Orton-Gillingham and show them how this fits in. So I'm fortunate enough where I have the training in both areas. Mm-hmm. And so I think the link helped where people could see, oh, I know this. Well, now here's a way to approach it. Here's a difference. And this is why we're doing this. These are smart people. They want to know why. Why do I have to change when we already had a program there that was a phonics program? Mm -hmm. That phonics program was fine but it had holes and there were things that had to be built around it. Plus they were still using leveled books with that phonics program. So rather than fill in holes, we just started fresh. And, uh, you know, for the most part, for the reading portion, uh, you know, the, the writing and the other pieces that really need to be added on, we're going to revisit that too as we move along. But for kindergarten and first grade, you know as well as I, it's really about getting that um, letter sound connection down right, blending, segmenting, obviously comprehension, but most of kindergarten and first, it's not about reading comprehension, It's about language comprehension and vocabulary. Get that right. And you could build on the language. You could build on great books. There's a lot that could be done. But if you don't get this right in K and 1 to the automatic level, not just accurate, but automatic level that you're looking for, everything else falls apart. Yep. 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 As my son could do none of that (laughs) at the end of first grade. (laughs) Well, you know what? Um, You know, he's not alone and that's why you do what you do. And hats off to you, Ashley, that you stayed with this coffee talk and you stay connected to uh, the dyslexia initiative because it's not just about your son. And what I find the people who I really have tremendous respect for, um, you know, I'm involved with this man, Trey Hadrick, that I think I told you about. He took my books, the if only books, if only I would have known books. And he did a book club with those books with five African-American men, fathers, educators, and then also 
somebody who was father, but an entrepreneur, a businessman, a barber, and all these men who had no background in literacy were using my book to learn the lingo and to understand the reading process. And that's a passion of mine, of getting people in the early stages from yep. when their kids are birth to five to know so that they could advocate for something better. And what I love about Trey and what I love about you is you, you know, he didn't have to go this extra step. I tutored his son. He could have said, you know what? That's it. I'm happy my son's doing okay. He could read now. Very good. No, he has a commitment to his community. Right. He has a commitment to people in black and brown communities where he knows they don't have tutoring centers in, on every street corner and where they might not be getting this information and they're not part of, let's say, dyslexia mom groups. And so um, that's my passion as well. And I really respect what he's doing by staying connected, even though he didn't have to really talk up. And I respect you. You have a son now who's already a teenager, right? 13. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, you know, and look what you're doing for people who have young children and trying to get that message out. So, you know, this is my circle. You know, there used to be a show, what was that, Jesse Waters? The, you know, mm. I'm on Fox News or something. I used to see sometimes he used to do, this is, um, uh, this is Waters and this is my world, or I'm Jesse Waters and this is my world. And the show was called <laughs> Waters World or something like that. So I'm like, this is my world, you know? <laughs> it's like, I want to be with people who care enough to step out and do something more, paying it forward. I'm, I, I'm big on paying it forward. It's not just about your kid. Now you have to talk up. And you have to spread the word and you have to do what you can. You know, my goal for these books is to get them into maternity wards and pediatricians offices and, um, you know, preschools and libraries, because I want to build that knowledge base. Um, so if you could help me with that, I would appreciate that. Well, and I keep, so we have, my goal is we have the third largest pediatric hospital, the, the third best pediatric hospital in the country here. And I love my pediatrician because he's been so involved with us. You know, it's not just that we go in once a year when he's got a cold and he's like, okay, he's, he's fine. He's you know, he's taken that step beyond, you know, he has a relationship with our family. Like when they were, the school was insisting our son had ADHD. And I, you know, my husband and I were pushing back going, he does not have ADHD. And the pediatrician, you know, I send him a message and he calls me at six o'clock one night and talks to me for an hour on the phone. How many pediatricians do that these days? And then 
not only does he then write a letter to the school saying, this child does not have ADHD, I'm his pediatrician, I've been his pediatrician since he was two, he then tells me, he goes, if you ever want me to attend an IEP meeting, all you have to do is ask. And I was like, who does that? Wow. I don't even attend. <laughs> I, I understand them. <laughs> I, I was floored by that offer. And so I really, I, I, because I respect him so much, I, I appreciate him so much. I think that he will listen to me. And I want, I want him to help me take your book to the people that run this institution, because it's an institution, and say, here's a golden opportunity in a, in a city of over 3 million people to, to do this right. Oh. You've got pediatrician centers, you've got thousands of them around the city, let's, let's and three hospitals, let's do this right. And you know what, what Trey told me, and he was actually just interviewed by Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, so was I, and that's coming out next week. Nice. So my interview's coming out next week. Trey's just came out. And um, what Trey said was that this book needs to be like in a back to school night package that you know how you have pencils and paper and folders on, on the list. Parents should get this when their kids first start school mm -hmm. so that it could put them on you know, steady ground when they have to go and talk to a teacher and understand if this really makes sense in terms of what their kids are getting. And the book was written for people who don't have, let's say, um, you know, high literacy skills. It has pictures in it. It's written in a play format on purpose so mm -hmm. that it could be relatable to anyone. And, um, you know, I do feel that you, definitely your group and most Facebook groups cater to suburban white moms for the most part. You know yeah. that fact. Oh, yeah. You know that. I could tell looking at the demographics on my page, who follows me, the age yeah. group, you know, and we know it's white suburban moms. Yeah. We and we need to break that mold. We have to break the mold. And I'm really trying in terms of getting this message out there. But you know what? There are so many things we could be doing and what was great, what Phonic Books did, Tammy did, was she just donated a whole bunch of decodable books to the barber in Norristown, Pennsylvania to make it the first barber shop that has decodable books. Maybe not the first barbershop that has books for kids, but you know what that usually is, just books, like a library in the barbershop. Mm -hmm. The first barbershop to show parents when they walk in what a decodable book is and to start the conversation about phonics. And it will have my books there as well. And I'm gonna also donate some that I think would be worthy of this display. Um, of books. Uh, you know, I just recently got mature reading instruction, MRI, 
Piper books, um, Geraldine Carter just gave me some. They're phenomenal for kids 13 and over, for oh, wow. sure. You know, middle school, high school. Right. You know. That's a huge question that comes up too. Huge. About the older kids. I'm bringing this to that barbershop and I am giving them these books so that they have that because I'm sure there are people going in there who would like to see what could be done for the struggling reader who's not a kid anymore. Right. So um, I think those are excellent, but you know, and, and what Tammy, you know, from Phonic Books donated is just unbelievable. So we're going to have like a little ceremony there, nice. but this is the kind of work that I want to do. I yeah. want to build, you know, communities that are knowledgeable, not just if you're in the know on Facebook. Right. So maybe we could talk about that. I would, I would absolutely love that. My mind's already kind of going in a few directions. So yes, please. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have plans, but I do have one more question about, yeah. about Lindbrook. What did they do with their leveled readers? Okay, so they're not getting rid of them and okay. they will be used for kids where when they know for sure that these kids absolutely could read just about anything and give mm -hmm. them the level books. They're not that, throwing them out. What I'm saying is this is a process, Ashley. Right. It is a process. And some of the books at the higher levels, I, you know, I'm definitely not a fan of the ones at the real low levels. Like I think, you know, A to D in particular, should those should be burned. <laughs> I really think so. But, um, you know, they're not all terrible books. I think they're used inappropriately. Yeah. Core decisions are made from these benchmark assessments. I don't think they're necessary but they have them there and they're not going to get rid of them. And as long as uh, they're being used with an eye towards understanding, we don't put a leveled book in the hands of a kid who really doesn't have the code down, where they're going to get into the habit of guessing or using cueing strategies then there's no reason to completely get rid of it. I think that the teachers will be smart enough to make decisions. And as Jerry Baleka said, I would put my kindergarten teachers up against any reading specialist outside of this district. And I think they probably know more um, because they have had such extraordinary training. And so, I would have to agree in terms of many of whom are out there now who are still doing the same thing they've been doing for the last 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I asked the question specifically because I don't know if you saw it, um, but that, and I don't remember what group or page that debate was happening. Could have even been my own <laughs> that debate was happening on. I think it was last week. Um, but somebody did, you know, somebody made the argument, which is what you just stated, which I agreed with, which you don't necessarily have to get rid of them. Some of them you do, but you don't have to get <laughs> rid of them overall. 
because you can give them to the competent readers to read. Yeah, give them anything. Right, but don't use them as a teaching tool. (laughs) And don't use them to judge a level. Like your kid is a J, your kid is. We know that that is such an arbitrary cut point and they're so inaccurate. So don't use them to judge kids. Don't give them to kids who can't read the words on the page. Don't Mm -hmm. give them to kids where their default strategy is to just memorize words. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have kids, kids come into school reading. I mean, Mm -hmm. and you know for sure that they could read the code. No problem. Give them anything to read. I don't care what you give them. Um, use, Use any type of book you want, but let's be mindful of teaching all kids correctly. And, um, and they'll be better writers also if they get a structured approach. That's what we're seeing also, that kids might have been able to get by reading, but the spelling mm-hmm. and the writing, as you know, is a different story. And uh, certainly those kids who get a structured approach they use vowels in kindergarten writing. And that is a direct quote from somebody who saw their writing in kindergarten. So that this group that's being trained now mm-hmm. and they only started with sounds, right? You know, a few months ago, that person never saw writing like this with kindergarten kids actually sounding out and using vowels instead of just, you know, trying to invent spelling. And I'm not saying everything's perfect, but they have an understanding that vowels exist. Right. That's a shift right there. Yeah. And um, things are looking good. That's awesome. And is, is somebody, is, I don't even kind of know how to get the question out right. Is, is this going to be monitored for a research study over time or are they just going to monitor their own progress and their their mon- intention to publish, I guess? Uh, interesting. Um, you know what? I'm sure that sounds right. We'll want to use this because mm-hmm. we are really, um, I think there's another school somewhere in the Midwest, or I, I don't know which state uses sounds, right? But I think we are the first American district, public school district, using sounds, right? Okay. And I think I'm the first person, American, who's making this connection for them. So, you know, in terms of district work, changing district mindset. I'm not saying it's the first place to use it, but I mm-hmm. think we might be the first ones. So I'm sure he'll want to do something with it. Right. As far as Lynbrook, I can't speak for what they'll do, but they certainly track progress. They, they are very big on data. And as a matter of fact, the assistant superintendent, his background is in math and statistics. And, uh, you know, I think that He's a very bright man and he will definitely use what he sees um, correctly. And uh, I'm excited, I'm excited. It's not going to be cherry picking. 
That's for sure. You know oh, what I mean. It's not I going to be what we normally see, cherry picking numbers. Right. I think it's going to be real stuff. The whole data set. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Not the 2% statistical analysis of the top 5% of the number. Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, I think it will be honest. I think it will be real. Mm -hmm. And if you know me, we try to keep it real. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So um, thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure to talk to you because this is actually the first interview I did about this district work. You know, usually it's about other things, but this was the first one. And I wanted you to be the first one I tell. So, Yay. Because I love you. Thank you know you. that. I love you too. <laughs> so we'll I can't wait to get a cowboy hat on you. <laughs> I can't wait. Yay. I'm actually going to meet you. I know in person. I can't wait. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. We're going to be doing that two-step. <laughs> we are. Introduce you to some real cowboys. <laughs> I don't know. Well, my husband just heard that. <laughs> Not in a bad way. Good way. Good cowboys <laughs> will dance and then say good night, ma'am. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I so much appreciate you taking the time and sharing this with us because this is huge. Absolutely thank huge. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.